Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat. How are you doing, Elliot? I'm good, thanks very much. Now, oh, I first came to, came to notice you guys when you were on Channel 4 News and you had proof that the... Uh, you, the plane shut down of Ukraine from Holland was shut down by the Russians. And when I saw that, I saw you were using citizen journalism to a new extent. And it reminded me of how 30, about in the 60s, when the Americans were using satellites to notice the, uh, what was going on uh, with Cuba. And you were doing something very similar, but using the modern technology that was around us. Yes, yeah, so... Um What's really changed over the last 10 or 15 years or so is the access to just information everyone has. I mean, anyone with a laptop now has access to huge amounts of information and not just, you know, Wikipedia and stuff like that, but minute by minute, second by second sometimes, people's experiences going through different events. So with MH17, we had a whole range of sources. Um, The first kind of key thing we were coming across were... Uh, videos and photographs of this book missile launcher um, that a lot of people suspected was responsible for shooting it down and it looked like it was going through separatist territory and the separatists were saying no we don't have these missile systems yet there were these videos and photographs that seemed to counter that but the thing is you can't just rely on someone saying this photograph or video was taken somewhere so we used a process called geolocation where we use satellite imagery and other reference material to compare that to the videos and photographs and then we could establish exactly where they were taken. And from there, we could establish the movements of this missile launcher through Ukrainian separatist territory. They traveled towards a field where people in that area, talking on social media, said they saw a rocket being fired just before MH17 was shot down. And it led to a field that had between, um, on satellite imagery, you could see burn marks in the field between the two dates of the attack. And then just... All this information was out there about the movements of this missile launcher, and we just built and built and built on that. Yeah, well, to me, because social media is so prevalent now, any event that's happening right now is going to appear first on there rather than anywhere else. So on Twitter, for example, it was, for example, the, a scenario where a couple of years ago with London Bridge when there was uh, people causing trouble there, you could see within minutes or seconds on social media what was going on, whereas a news crew wouldn't be there right away. Yeah, and... What we usually look for in, with these events, be it you know when we're looking at an event in Syria or Yemen or anywhere you know else in the world, you're looking for really just those initial posts in that initial moment of what's happening because then you have uh, a real uptick in posts on social media about yeah. people talking about whatever people are talking about. Yeah. So you, you're trying to identify that first moment when it's the people on the ground having the initial reaction, you know, tweeting about it, posting on Facebook, you know, sharing videos, and discovering all that information and using that to first of all piece together what appears to have happened, and then referencing that against, for example, like witness statements in the media or media reporting, or if you can get it, other imagery. Like if you're lucky, you might get satellite imagery of an incident, or you might find a CCTV footage somewhere that shows it from another angle. And then it's taking all the evidence, establishing what the nar- narrative seems to be and what yeah. that's based on each kind of data point, and then seeing where there's contradictions and trying to understand where those contradictions are coming from. Because witnesses can make mistakes. They can say they think they've seen something when actually it's something else that they're, they're looking at. Like, you know, people were describing the missile launcher that shot down MH17 when it was driving about the local Ukrainians as a tank. Yeah. But 
it does it just because they think it's a tank doesn't mean they know for sure it's a tank because they aren't arms recognition experts or anything like that. And people make mistakes, and even afterwards, you have you'll speak to witnesses to these events, and they'll misremember stuff just because that's kind of the nature of how people, um, you know, are basically. Yeah, because I'm thinking of, of the movie Doctor No when they say there's a dragon on the island, but it turns out it's just a fire breather. It's just a tank with a, with a ability to shoot flames like a flamethrower. So people can see a thing differently and they don't know what it is. And they assume, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be that, when they don't know exactly. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's especially when you have a conflict coming to part of the world where people haven't haven't been bombed before, so they don't know what these things are coming out of the plane. I mean, a big big issue we've had is people misidentifying, for example, uh, you know, smoke or even tear gas as some sort of nerve agent or something like that. I mean, often you have people when they're, it, you know, they're, they're like with the Black Lives Matters protesters, yeah. some people were saying, oh, they're using nerve agent against us, which is kind of absurd when you actually know about nerve agents and the impact on yeah. people. But people just get scared and they get confused and they say something and someone picks that up and repeats it. And before you know it, you've got a complete alternative version of what actually happened because people have just repeated the same error, basically. Or maybe as well, they've got an internal bias. Because it's a government and the government's done it in the past, they assume they're going to do it again. Well, I mean, there's that. I think what happens as well with online communities is they form around certain topics, and very and often um, the kind of what you might call the uh, alternative media ecosystems that form around things like, for example, the MAGA movement, QAnon, yeah. uh, flat earthers. They all, I think, at a root of them have a fundamental distrust of authority or a specific form of authority yeah. because. And then they kind of find a community who supports that distrust and feeds into it and gives them access to a whole range of kind of media products, podcasts and uh, websites and blogs and personalities. And what has happens with people is they get more drawn into those kind of communities and detached from basically the kind of mainstream reality yeah. and authority. And that becomes starts becoming quite dangerous when either they move towards kind of violent extremism, like what you've seen with, uh, for example, what happened with 8chan and the Christchurch shooter. They were basically radicalized by those online message boards and other content ecosystem. Or you have kind of the, you know, anti-mask and anti-vaccination movement, um, a lot of which is coming from the alternative health community where there's, you know, there's legitimate stuff there, but the kind of more extreme end of that then starts deciding that the the coronavirus is completely fake and that all vaccinations are you know that kind of stuff but it's the same in a way mechanisms that are behind that the same kind of online mechanisms with you know you click on a video about the flatter for a joke and you'll share you're given you know 10 more videos by youtube to watch about it you can fall down those rabbit holes and then if you really connect with those communities you can often find it very difficult to maybe brought back into reality. And this is something we see more and more. And some governments and some politicians kind of weaponize this. I mean, Russia has used the kind of Syria chemical weapons troop community. Donald Trump has used, you know, the QAnon and MAGA community who exist in this completely separate bubble. But when that starts coming into the mainstream, which I think is what you're seeing with the Republican Party in America at the moment, that starts causing real damage to you know, the mainstream Republican Party. And I think with Donald Trump going to run for election in 2024, if he really goes ahead with doing that, the Republicans are either going to have to basically let him so they don't lose that real fringe voters in the Republican Party, 
or alternatively, they're going to have to not let him and then lose that fringe anyway. And they're basically, when you're talking about US elections now, and it can be a couple of hundred thousand votes in the right states, and you've lost. Yeah. And I think that could be what the Republican Party might be facing in 2024 if Donald Trump hangs around. What's scares me a moment is Trump announced a couple days ago that because of social media is against him, he's not going to help fund the, uh, the military unless he's given the powers to shut down social media who, who, who are against him. And that's going to be scary. Yeah, so it, this is the thing. He, he, he's completely selfish. Yeah. And that's a big problem for the Republican Party because he's not a re- he's not a Republican. He's just a selfish man who yeah. managed to get elected president as a Republican. But his supporters are Republicans, and they're a big chunk of the Republican base. So if and they're fanatics, basically they're Trump fanatics. They're not Republican fanatics. They've chosen Trump over the Republican Party, yeah. but they are Republican voters. And he just needs to take away you know two percent of those voters in an election, and that means the Republican Party won't win. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a friend who's a Republican and voted Trump. And more and more each day, he's seen what Trump's doing. He's, he's aghast at what, he, what he's turned into. And I said, you're one of the very few guys I've met who can actually openly admit you voted Trump and you, and you realized how, how bad it turned out. Most won't do that. And I think with the work that we're doing with open source investigation and with Bellingcat, we get asked a lot about countering disinformation. That becomes kind of part and parcel of a lot of our investigations, especially those focused on certain nation states like Russia, yeah. where they do produce a lot of disinformation because you kind of have to address that to a point. But I think often because Russia has been seen as the source of disinformation by so many in the media and policymakers and elsewhere, that they ignore actually what the real threat is, which are these alternative communities that just create an alternative reality for people to live in. I mean, there's, I, I, you kind of think of the writing of like these future dystopias of kind of William Gibson and, you know, like Cyberpunk yeah. 2077's out now, and that these people get drawn into these alternative realities by putting on like a headset and off they go. Yeah. We don't need that. You just need a mobile phone and you're drawn into a complete alternative reality where everyone will tell you everything you want to hear and that, you know, it, it just draws you away from communities. And one of the saddest things I've read recently is um, the Reddit, subreddit, QAnon casualties, where yeah. people are talking about their basically what happened to their family members after they were drawn into these communities and how over time they just can't communicate with them because all they talk about is Q and Q drops yeah. and how wonderful Donald Trump is and how, you know, there's this cabal of pedophiles, you know, all this stuff. And they just can't communicate with these people anymore because if they do and they say, I don't agree with you or I'm going to vote Democrat, then they're the enemy. Yeah. And this is wives, children, husbands, you know, who can't talk with their loved ones anymore because they've been drawn into these alternative media ecosystems that exist online. Yeah, I'm thinking of things like, like Pizzagate, which, was, which to me was yeah, just that stuff. rubbish. It's all, and it, what's worse is it builds and grows because over time, communities are, who are focused maybe on one area – yeah. Like, for example, the Syrian chemical weapon troopers. Yeah. They were focused on that topic, but a lot of the people in that community now are focusing on coronavirus and conspiracies around that. Yeah. But that exposed basically starts bringing in people who are kind of from the alternative health community who are being drawn into the coronavirus stuff and brings them in contact with other conspiracy theories. So in a way, the kind of Venn diagram of all these different groups is kind of drawing closer into one big circle. Yeah. 
And this is being completely missed. I, I was doing a panel at the European Parliament and talking to them about this information. And all the speakers before me, they were talking about bots and influence campaigns run from Russia. No one was talking about these alternative communities. And a really good example of one of these communities, if you ever see the um, Netflix documentary Behind the Curve about the Flat Earthers, yeah. that was really interesting for me because it's a community I know a bit about, but seeing the parallels between how that community is kind of structured and how the personalities are and how they have their YouTube channels and they have the conferences. It's just like all the other kind of online communities that are focused on uh, those conspiracies, on on different kinds of conspiracies, even from chemical weapon troopers to MH17 troopers. They all have their communities with their personalities, their preferred websites, their YouTube channels, but they're crossing over a lot now. So you're, and going to end up, you know, maybe in five years, just everyone, just this huge conspiracy community who think everything's coronavirus is fake, that, um, you know, there's no chemical weapons in Syria, that MH17 wasn't shot down by Russia, that the earth is flat. Not necessarily every single person will believe it, yeah. but they'll be exposed <clears throat> to that information. I think that is a real fundamental threat to basically not just our kind of democracies, but our society as a whole. Because once people start living in unreality, and there's no way to get them out of there. Yeah. When it's a few thousand people, okay. When it's a few hundred thousand people, when it starts becoming millions of people, that's when it becomes a big problem. And I think, honestly think that's what we're starting to see with the Republican Party and Trump in America, bringing that QAnon MAGA community into the mainstream when they believe in complete fiction. And at times I'm feeling that people at QAnon are, are trying to hide from this kind of like, for example, uh, when, when you had that... Uh, the, uh, People who, who are involved in, in, in crime, but people don't want to know about, they try and bring QAnon to, in plain sight to hide what's going on. For example, like Epstein, what he'd done. Because some people involved in that were so powerful, QAnon probably could have been used to try and mask that so you wouldn't ask questions about it. I think the problem with QAnon, though, is because it's kind of similar to what happened with the Boston Marathon bombing with yeah. um, Reddit. We have this kind of huge community trying to do a very complicated investigation. And what you start having then is all the unconscious biases of those communities kind of being drawn into the investigation, which fundamentally in that investigation was straight up racism um, because of the people that are identified with from minorities and they were the wrong people. Yeah. And that was just this subconscious bias. The thing with the QAnon community, if they, it's very difficult to direct them to do good because they see anything that runs counter to what they're doing as being part of the conspiracy. Yeah. So, you know, even when like Save the Children are saying, please don't you know, be involved QAnon with what we're doing because it's actually a problem. It, it, they see that as save the children as being pro pedophilia or some yeah. wildness like that because they they have in a way they've <laughs> built their own narrative and their own um, mythology yeah. around what they're doing and they fit everything they see into that mythology which is a big problem it's something we have to kind of avoid doing in the work of Bellingham Cat that's why we kind of I mean, that's although in a way we work in the same way, we're looking at online material and we're piecing stuff together. We aren't doing that, we aren't informed by a specific mythology about the subjects we're yeah. looking at. Which, and, and you know, because we do have a legal consequence to what we publish, you know, when we're writing about Russian spies and naming them, you know, there's a legal consequence to that as well as you know, a security one and uh, you know, the others. So, we have to be extremely careful about what we're saying because we can get sued and people have tried to take action against us in the past and the thing with the QAnon community because this is they're the bit, this big amorphous kind of blob most of the time with a few personalities yeah. it's, it doesn't have that kind of level of 
um, you know, that legal requirement that it has to be truthful. They can just put any old rubbish out there and convince thousands of people of it, and then it becomes part of their mythology. The funny thing is, when I'm looking at the year's election at the moment, and someone's giving me a quote <clears throat> from some journalist, some person in the media who's claiming uh, that there was a fraud in the election, and then the link they gave was somebody from Infowars or something like that, or someone who's cooing on, I'm thinking, hold on, you're not giving me a, a credible media source that's been proven over the years to be credible. So I'm seeing something in the might theory example, oh yeah, there's a video that's proven this, or uh, so, or somebody's taking someone to court, and the latest news, I mean, you look at the news, it's uh, Infowars have claimed this. I'm thinking, well, hold on a second. How can Infowars be somebody that, rather than when they in the past have said things that have been distressful? I'm not right. And, yeah, and what happens as well is, the way, because of the structure of this kind of media ecosystem and how it connects to other more mainstream systems, like yeah. you will have some kind of crazy person making a statement somewhere in this one of these universes, these kind of alternative media ecosystems, but it'd be just some person. But then they'll be quoted by our blog, yeah. and then that blog will be cited by a slightly more mainstream site, and then that one will be cited by a slightly yeah. more mainstream site. Instead of saying the original person said that, they'll say this site is reporting that. Yeah. And after a few iterations of that, you get up to you know Fox News or the Daily Mail, and then everyone starts citing those as the source of the story. When if you follow it all the way back to the kind of base of the pyramid, it's usually often you know just some strange person who's had some funny ideas, and it's just been repeated enough times by a deaf news organisation that it breaks through to the kind of next level of authority basically and then if it breaks through into the mainstream ecosystem because I've, I've seen this as well like the daily mail writing a complete junk story based off one source that itself was based off a source that was wrong but that then because the mail's written about it it gets picked up by the international press yeah well, and then it's suddenly and then it, it and it's citing the mail not the original source and that's really a problem and that's why even as researchers when you're seeing someone citing something you always have to say, okay, let's go back and see what that's saying, what that's saying. And often what will happen as well, over time, that chain will break down because yeah. the site might go offline or something like that. So you can never find the original source of the claim without massive amount of work. The problem with disinformation, it takes seconds to make up a lie and have it go around the world. And you know, Well, for me, I call well, it daily mail the daily fail because a lot of the time the stories they, they produce is meaningless. And one of the last month was that four journalists write a story about a doctor who was seen Princess Diana before she died, Dr. Khan, and then putting out his rubbish. And took four people to write that story. And I'm thinking, that's not, that's not a proper story. And also, I found at times that when someone's actually on social media and they're retweeting something someone, someone said, they don't bother checking the source. Like, whenever I see something before, I give it a retweet, I make sure the source is genuine. And a lot of times, it's Breitbart or something else is very right wing, is saying something, and everyone assumes. Oh, right, but it must be true, but it's not. I, I mean, we, I, one piece I remember, we use this in our workshops quite often, is um, Daily Mail had an article, it was like, um, ISIS sex slave market sells Yazidi slaves, and there's a video. Yeah. And we looked into this, and the video, it shows uh, these ISIS members, one of them's holding up a big banner like this, it's completely kind of ridiculous scene. And it's from a documentary about ISIS, it's like a recreation of one yeah. of these supposed things. But the mail with one source from a Facebook page reported it as fact and it got like literally hundreds of thousands of page views 
There's never a correction per hour. It was completely false. But ISIS isn't going to sue you. So you can make up as many stories as you want yeah. about ISIS. Also, you see these um, stories sometimes in the kind of tableau price, press about, you know, some SAS operation where like some SAS sniper shot four ISIS members with one bullet and all, all those kind of boy's own stuff. Yeah. Mostly, I'm sure, just made up or just tall tales being told to journalists somewhere at best. And the kind of work we do with open source investigation is all based off publicly available, or nearly all based off publicly available material. So when we make a claim, we can say this is the original sources this is coming from. And usually we are, have taken steps to make sure it's genuine. If it's a video, we always try and figure out exactly where the video was filmed rather than taking it face value, yeah. what's, it claim, what's it claims to be. Because for me, I'm thinking of the Washington Post in the 70s, the stories that they broke, for example, like Watergate, for example, stuff like that, is what you kind of are doing now because they're checking and sourcing anything they published. They wouldn't publish until they knew it, it was verifiably uh, fact. And that's the same thing what you're kind of doing as well. Yeah, and it's really important now, I think, with the, there being so much, so many claims and... I mean, often I'll see the same claim that we've debunked six months earlier, like a video showing something being kind of reused by someone else for a completely different situation. Yeah. I mean, one of the best examples I have of that is um, when uh, a couple of years ago, there was a um, Indian journalist who shared a video on her Twitter feed. And she said it was like a US combat drone attacking ISIS forces. And I, it had like 10,000 retweets. And I looked at the video and I thought, hang on, this looks a bit odd because there's a big red button in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen that says fire. Yeah. And it was from a computer game. And I found the computer game video it was from. It was yeah. like an AC-130 gunship simulator game. Yeah. Found it on YouTube, same video. So I quote-tweeted it and saying it's from a computer game. And, you know, mm. got like 10 retweets. It happens when you do a fact check. But then um, a couple of weeks later, the Russian Ministry of Defense published some images from drones um, saying they were showing irrefutable proof that the US was helping ISIS retreat from yeah. Mosul. And I looked at one of the images and it was a screenshot from the same video game. So Russia, this is the Ministry of Defense, yeah. was using screenshots from computer games as evidence of, irrefutable evidence of America helping ISIS. A massive damning claim yet using completely ridiculous evidence. I mean, I couldn't believe they'd done that. It was madness. Um, but because I'd already mentioned about this Indian journalist using the video a couple of weeks earlier, lots of people who follow me are the same kind of people who follow the Russian MOD. Yeah. They immediately responded. And before even that kind of piece of disinformation could enter the kind of media ecosystem, it was debunked. And the headlines were, you know, Russia uses computer game images as irrefutable proof. And it went all over the world because it was so absurd. And that is the only time I've seen the Russian MOD, who get caught lying a lot, actually retract anything they've said. And they blamed like a civilian employee for taking these screenshots and posting them online. But it was a huge humiliation for them. But it shows the value of in our work of being part of a community online and, you know, sharing stuff and engaging people. Cause that's really the only way you can really counter this disinformation is making people engaged with a community that is, you know, in a way the kind of white blood cells of this. Yeah. Cause if this was 30 years ago, you, you, you couldn't do this. And I remember when the story came out, I'm thinking it's great that because someone like yourself can go online and debunk this. But for example, right now, if, if American election would, Trump was 30 years ago, Social media couldn't be used to try and prove he's wrong. You'd be told uh, by the media one way or another way, and that was it. Choose your media lines. Are you CNN or are you Fox? No, no in between. 
And yeah, because there was no way for it to be on the ground. It's like the way conflict is covered now yeah. compared to, you know, you look back at, you know, a big moment was the 2003 um, Gulf invasion of uh, Iraq and the build-up to that and the kind of disinformation that the US and UK governments put out that to build a case for war. Yeah. And that's had a lot of impact on people. You know, it has a lot of impact on people because they lied and they lost that trust in authority. But now with what we're seeing across the world, you have, you know, an airstrike happens in, you know, Yemen. And, you know, we've been looking into this, these Saudi airstrikes. And even in a country like Yemen, which isn't that digitally connected, you still get videos and photographs from the attack site. Um, You still can get satellite imagery of it. So you can actually, and this is what we've been working on a lot, reconstruct what happened based off these open sources combined with kind of local groups taking witness statements and taking some extra photos on the ground. And a big challenge for us now is we get, um, we've been asked a lot by people like the, you know, at the ICC, for example, the International Criminal Court, about um, how you use these kind of videos for justice and accountability. Yeah. Because you kind of assume that those big bodies would know what to do with this stuff, but it's so new, it's kind of like they're learning from us still. So we have a lot of discussions about this. If you're in a courtroom, for example, and you show a video and say you've geolocated it to a judge, you won't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Because it's such a new concept. I mean, even, you know, even though journalism is kind of a really good way of using this, there's still lots of journalism courses that still don't really teach anything about this, even though it's like a really useful skill. And we find now we have lots of newsrooms engaging with us, asking us how to train them the skills to do this kind of investigative work, even if we're like a basic level of fact checking, because if you can't do a reverse image search to check a photograph, then I don't think you should be working in a newsroom because it's like one of the most basic skills you can have now. It's like picking up a pen. And also, whenever someone sends you a video clip, you got to make sure that's genuine and you don't take it as it is because it can be doctored. Yeah, I was, I was, um, actually, I was asked uh, recently to look at a video, um, I won't name who it is, but a a well-known news program had shown a video claiming to be um, from a conflict. And it shows something quite significant. And I watched the video and I immediately said, that is a four-year-old video. They've, they, someone's obviously sent them an old, old video. They've not checked it because some of these are hard to check when it's videos. Yeah. But what they're using is actually something that's been around for four or five years and it's not what they think it is. Yeah. And But, you know, this was a big news show that did this. But it, you see these little mistakes cracks slipping through. And it took me literally 30 seconds to check that video. I took yeah. a screenshot, did a reverse image research, and it found more of the original copies of the video that were still floating online four years ago. But um, I think journalists really need these skills to kind of be core to the kind of work they're doing rather than something that someone else does in the organization and they've got other stuff to do. But I understand as well that, you know, trained journalists working at news organizations don't always necessarily have the sort of time that you need to sit down to do big investigations. But the basic skills of just using the internet, yeah. stuff like reverse image search, stuff like knowing how to do like fairly normal Google searches, like putting like putting quote marks around something on Google to search it so you find the exact phrase. Yeah. It's something that a huge amount of people don't seem to know about. I mean, when we do our training workshops, and we do a lot of them, those are the sort of things we're teaching people. And we still frequently have people who just haven't heard of that kind of thing. You know, I find, worst thing I find is when somebody, somebody decides to retweet a comment on Twitter without even checking properly, or to use it for a source of the story, someone says, oh, by the way, I just, just came in on the Twitter feed. Then that's it. We're going to focus on that one thing, even not without checking that it, it's reliable or not. 
Yeah, and you, you see this so much. I mean, people will re- share stuff that reinforces their own beliefs, basically, and that's the problem with <laughs> social media. If something, if you agree with something, you aren't going to. Most people won't bother even fact checking it or thinking twice about it before sharing it. Most of them won't even click into the link to see where it's going. Yeah. Um, and this is this kind of happens more when you're dealing with people who have kind of started to kind of detach from the mainstream media ecosystem and moving to alternative media narratives. Yeah. And sad thing, alternative media in some ways it can be good because it's not been biased towards a certain way. But problem is. A lot of it is is too uh, far out there, like QAnon, and you, you can't trust it as such. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it just starts becoming. It's, it's really hard to counter as well, and what worries me more than anything is, um, like Ofcom in the UK said that fifty percent of ten year olds in the UK have a smartphone, and to me that's a really scary statistic because yeah. that's ten year a lot of ten year olds getting onto the internet being exposed to stuff apart from you know all the other terrible things on the internet but just absolute garbage on youtube and they aren't being equipped with the ways to actually you know evaluate it properly i mean if they see videos on youtube that are flashily made saying why coronavirus is kind of bad you know fake with lots of sources being cited that they can't possibly find I mean, adults fall for that stuff all the time. So what is a 10-year-old going to do when they start watching that video? You know, it's, I, I think schools need to be more proactive. And it, I know this is difficult because, you know, it's hard enough getting all the right subjects to at school so far. But about teaching young people from like a young age, not just that the internet is a place where they can kind of encounter you know, abusers and, you know, terrible injury yeah. and stuff like that, but how this kind of disinformation, how these alternative systems work. Problem is we you know, academically don't really know much about that because there's not been much studying being done on it because it's so new. And until those studies are done and there's actual academic agreement on some of this stuff, it's very hard to go to any government and say, hey, can you uh, teach your kids about this uh, really weird and seemingly unimportant topic that's actually really important. Yeah, a couple of years ago in Ireland, we were trying to bring in digital white consent for online to be 13. And I thought that was too young for someone to be on social media. So I wrote an article about it, and I actually got a famous woman called Dr. Mary Aiken, who was a person that based the TV show CSI Cyber on. And I asked her, would you mind uh, giving me some quotes for this article, because I think it's wrong. And I wrote the article was yeah, before we were going to have a vote in the Irish Parliament and wrote this. And the next day, the Irish uh, RT, the main Irish TV uh, station, asked me would I come on and talk about my article on, on, on TV. Sadly, I got the email at 5 o'clock in the evening and I was at a concert, Betsy the Rolling Stones. So there's no way I could have got there and back in time. But the fact of the matter is that the fact that somebody had read it and said, well, this is important. Because at that time, everyone was assuming 13 was a great age. And most people in Europe were saying it's got to be 16. But here we thought 13 is fine. I think it's scary when you get 13-year-old on social media. Because who knows who they're talking to or what they're going to see or read. Yeah, and I think as well, enough issue that's a big problem at the moment are, is online gaming at the moment yeah. as well. I mean, I'm someone who spent a lot of time when I was younger doing online gaming. I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft and stuff like that. So I have an understanding of this, of what it's like and how addictive they can be because I was really into it. Yeah. But then it's like my daughter, she's at school and she, her like nine-year-old classmates are playing like Fortnite for like hours and hours every single night. And they're clearly completely addicted to it. Yeah. And they just talk about it all the time. It's all they can talk about. And these games nowadays, they are better designed to cook people to them. 
Yeah. And that's one, I think that's one of the problems is there's, and you know, things like kind of loot crates and stuff like that start finding all these little hooks to get into people. And I'm seeing kind of the, you know, I, I knew a lot of people like myself who were very obsessed about World of Warcraft and would play it hours yeah. and hours a day. I'm seeing that now in kind of my daughter's kind of nine-year-old classmates, that same, all they can think about is it. But when you've got a younger mind like that, at least I was an adult when I was yeah. doing that myself, but when it's a very young mind, I mean, I do wonder how that has a long-term impact on someone. Because, you know, their minds are developing, they're growing, yeah. and they're spending hours and hours every night playing Fortnite and, you know, waiting for that next little bit of, that next click, the next loot drop or whatever it may be to keep them going. I was scary. It was a few years ago, a TV series called The Looming Tower about 9-11. And the fact that during that there was people uh, in a cell who are using the online video game to share messages of what they're going to do next. So you got a scenario where you can have somebody playing Fortnite or some other game in reality, they're sharing uh, information about where we're going to go next, what we're going to do, and what our next mission is going to be. And that kind of gets me kind of worried as well. Yeah, I mean, this, you don't know what you're being exposed to. I mean, some of the work I've done as well, I mean, there was one case we looked into where a young girl had been basically groomed online, um, and we were asked to help out. Fortunately, we identified who was behind that, but she was going through a really awful yeah. trauma because of that, because of what she had gone through. And she was like 14. And, you know, she was ashamed. She was, you know, cutting herself and stuff like that because of the trauma of it, even though her kind of parents were helping her through it. And that was because she kind of was just using, um, you know, chat programs online. She yeah. just had someone kind of find her and abuse her, unfortunately. And the worst thing is you get now that people are actually, I've seen people got emails saying, we've got a video of you doing something that's not nice. And um, if you don't pay us money, we're going to share it. And a friend of mine got this about a few months ago. And he yeah. said, uh, okay, fine, share it. I don't care. Go share the video. Who cares? I'm no one, I'm no one famous. Yeah, it's just, uh, unfortunately, somewhere people act online. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for that great conversation, Elliot. Have a, have a great day and uh, good luck in the future. Yeah, you have a good one. Cheers. Thanks, bye. Bye.